This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Today's scripture reading is from the book of John, chapter 5, verses 24 through 27. Again, that's John 5, 24 through 47, if I said 27. <laughs> All right, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming, and now here, when the dead will hear the voice, of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testifies to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time, and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe? Since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, You would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we have, we just sang words that proclaims our commitment to worshiping you. And Father, that is something that we feel uh, deeply in in our hearts, in our souls, in our spirits, God, I pray that we remember you tell us to worship you in spirit and in truth. 
And so, God, I pray that the truth of your word will be attached to the emotional response we have to who you are. I pray that what we feel is rooted in what we know and that what we know is rooted in what we feel and those two things would not be divorced. God, you tell us that your word is profitable to correct and to comfort and to shape us and to mold us. So, God, as we come to this part of this service, I pray that you indeed would mold us, fashion us. Father, we didn't come here as perfectly formed works. So, God, will you make us look a little bit more like you as a result? In Jesus' name, amen. One thing that I have have learned uh, in being a sibling and in being a parent or even just being around kids in general is uh, whenever there is something that goes wrong, it can be really hard to determine what happened. I just spent some time uh, with my my daughter on a middle school trip. Uh, I was chaperoning, first time I did that, bless God, I'm in one piece. Because me and middle schoolers, we didn't always have the best relationship. Uh, So I was always wondering, like as a kid, that was kind of an awkward time for me. Uh, So going out and doing this was a big deal. And I remember uh, there were several kids, all of the, you know, a lot of her seventh grade class were there. And it's it's hard when kids get in in spats or people get in disagreements. And none of of those things happen in my group because I was a real amazing chaperone, right, Paige? Yes, I was. Uh, But there were groups where there would be disagreements and issues would happen and I would be talking to other chaperones and and they're like, I don't really know what to do. I mean, if one kid is saying something happened here and another kid is saying something happened over here, how do you get down to the middle of it? I mean, how do you know who's telling the truth? How do you get down to like how the wrongdoing occurred and who is responsible for the wrongdoing? Much like we're grownups. Trying to establish details of an issue can be really tough. If you, especially when you're talking about wrongdoing that's occurred, what happened? Who did it? How do we know what's true? What do we lean on in order to verify what is true? Well, typically we we lean on witnesses, right? We lean on witnesses. We say, well, who saw it? Okay, let me get a number of witnesses that hopefully can validate or corroborate the claim that was made over here. And we do our best with kind of weighing what's said by witnesses on one side and witnesses on another side. And, and, and that's important, right? It's important to have witnesses. Uh, witnesses often play a vital role in securing criminal convictions. As a matter of fact, uh, police surveys show that eyewitness testimony is the main form of evidence in more than 20% of cases. The other thing, though, is that eyewitness accounts, and we have lawyers in the room that will attest to this, eyewitness accounts are not always reliable. You can't always trust even even the most well-intentioned eyewitness account all the time. As a matter of fact, 75% of false convictions are caused by inaccurate eyewitness statements. That's a, that's a really high number. Of all the, not to say, you know, we don't know exactly what the number is of false statements, but 75% of the ones that end up being false are because of faulty eyewitness testimony. Now, there are different factors that go into what would make your testimony possibly false, right? The first is the obvious, intentional deception. Okay, there could be someone who's intentionally deceiving. That would be one. But that's not even the, the, the main story for most. There's something called memory decay. Over time, there are different factors that affect what you remember or what you thought you remembered. And it may take a little bit of work to start jogging back what indeed happened, if you can remember it at all. Another thing that accounts for some some poor testimony, poor eyesight. There are people whose vision 
are not as great. And, and listen, we all are accustomed to doing what? I see what I see. What I don't see, I just fill in the blanks with, 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 with what is likely to have happened. That's, that's what we all do. That's our natural, finite, kind of broken minds. We don't have a perfect recollection as much as we think. Another thing that affects your ability to recall as a, as a witness is induced stress. If you have intense stress, that can affect what you remember or what you think that you saw. And then obviously, we've talked about this before, implicit biases. Think, certain things, certain th- ways that you are just prone to think or certain things you've just held to no matter what and nothing changes that. And so what you think you remember or what you think you saw, uh, parts of it might be true and there may be parts that you don't even realize that you're kind of adding in at the same time. There's something else that uh, attorneys talk, talk about a good deal. is something called eyewitness talk. Witnesses that discuss what they saw with each other. So they begin to go back over the facts. They see each other and they talk about things that one person remembers about the event. And then somebody hears that. And then they begin to change their mind about what they saw or what they thought they saw based on the evidence of another witness. So I mean, I thought I remembered a thing, but now that I hear you talk about it, now it's making me go, oh, you know what? Maybe I did see that too. Maybe it was somebody in a green shirt and not a red shirt, because when you say that, that just makes me think maybe, maybe I don't have it all together. One survey found that 86% of real eyewitnesses claim to have discussed the event with other witnesses prior to giving evidence. It's known as co-witness conformity. Witnesses become influenced into including things they didn't actually see in their statements. So I, 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 I thought I saw something, then I talked to somebody else who says they saw the same thing, and then based on their story, I don't, this isn't even intentional, but I begin to kind of uh, include some things that I heard someone else say as well without even meaning to. The results of this is what? It's, it's interesting. There was, a, there was a study done in England. They did these experiments where they decided, we're going to see if we can maybe observe this and maybe put this to the test. And so they took more than 600 people. They had them witness a crime. They showed them actual footage of a bar fight that had taken place. Now, some of the groups, some of the pre- people in these groups were actors. They were actors that were placed there in order to suggest that the wrong man had started the fight. That was their job, right? So you've got people who, who, who actually are in good faith here to watch the video of the fight and then begin to kind of recount what it is that they saw. Then you've got people in these same groups posing as these same participants going, yep, and, and based on what I saw, I saw X, Y, and Z, and I think some other guy started the fight. And so that's what they did. They came and they began to kind of put that out there. Here's what they found. People would be interviewed, and they were asked, hey, who started the fight? The witnesses were susceptible to accepting false information from those other witnesses, and they would then include this new evidence in their own statement. Do do you see that? They would sit there, and they they saw what they saw, but then someone else would go, actually, that person over there started the fight. They're the ones who actually did it, not that one. And they said it enough, 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 until people started actually believing. Oh, yeah, you know, maybe what I thought I saw wasn't actually true at all. And now, why does this happen? Well, some, some would say that it's, it's very possible that people begin to doubt their own judgment after they're exposed to contradicting information. Now, 
sometimes that's it's important, right? I mean, if you have new information that comes, you gotta verify it because if, there, if there's trusted information, then you have to go, okay, what I thought I saw wasn't it. But this person was just bringing information that was false. They would hear it and they would go, oh man, I guess I have what I, what I thought I knew, I guess I must be wrong. So they started to believe that they had witnessed the false information. What is the point here? Our memories, our perception is fragile. What we think we understand, what we think we're seeing, what we think we're experiencing, doesn't mean it's not true, but it's fragile. And when we trust that more than something objective, we are always susceptible to believing lies. We are always susceptible to believing something that's not true. We're, we're susceptible to start kind of feeling, the moment you believe something that's not true, it starts to have an emotional effect on you. You don't even know it. Because you're believing something that's false. So if you're in an environment where you think you see something, and maybe it's not at all what you think it is, but now you're feeling uh, that, that that must be the case, now you've got this emotional thing that's welling up in you, and you're frustrated, and you're angry, and you don't have any other information to send you elsewhere. This is the problem with trying to establish what's true. How should we then establish what's true? What makes a good, reliable, and trustworthy witness. And beyond human and earthly matters, which matter a great deal, how do we establish what is true spiritually? I mean, if we struggle with just establishing what's true between us, how can we possibly establish what's true about God? How can we possibly establish what's true about who God is? How how do we do that? This is where John, the book of John, this gospel takes us deeper into the answer to that question. This fifth chapter, uh, I want to spend a good time largely in verses 30 through 40, but we're going to touch on the rest of the passage as well. There's a lot here. We can't possibly get to uh, everything. But what I really want us to focus on is what makes a witness an authority? What authority do we trust when we're believing a thing? When we choose to believe a thing, how do we become a witness that can be believed and trusted? Well, by way of review, we've got to look at where we are, right? Where John is right now, we've said this before and we're going to get to it again when we get to John 8, but John reminds us in chapter 8 why he wrote these things, right? He wrote this gospel down. We said this before, his gospel is so unique for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. His gospel is so unique because each one of the gospel authors, they had a specific focus, a specific theme, something they wanted you to understand about who Jesus is. They had varying kind of goals in doing that, telling many of the same stories, but trying to make you understand yet another very important aspect about who God is, who Jesus is. John is trying to really show his readers that Jesus is more than a man, that Jesus is more than just a good teacher, that Jesus is more than a good moral example, that he is truly the Messiah and he's truly God. He has the authority of God. And so everything he shares is to show us and to convince us to, to serve as a witness to us that Jesus is more than just a man. And so uh, where we find ourselves here is, is kind of an outflow of something we talked about uh, last week. You just saw Uh, This incredible thing happened with this man who got healed, right? We talked about the paralytic. He had been uh, paralyzed for 38 years. 
And uh, all of a sudden, Jesus does this incredible, this, he does this incredible miracle. All of a sudden, this man is walking and people are shocked. But the Jewish leadership had a problem with it because the witness, the authority they trusted was a set of traditions they had put in place that said, okay, in order for us to keep God's law of respecting the Sabbath, we need to make sure that people don't do anything that can be construed as work on the Sabbath because we really want to, quote unquote, honor God. When really it was, we really want to feel like our rules are getting us to the heart of God. And so that's what, uh, all of a sudden they see, hey, Jesus isn't following our traditional rules here. And so they call him out. Well, they call the man out first who gets healed, remember? And they were without, they should have been so overwhelmed by the incredible miracle that happened. But instead they were like, ah, I see that you're healed, but the rules weren't followed. And that's what we talked about before. Be very careful about thinking that you're trusting the word of God when you don't know the heart of God. And so here we are looking at this situation. They don't know God's heart. They think they do because they know God's word, they believe. And so they're looking at him and they're asking him, how dare you? How, how do you, where do you have the gumption? How do you have the audacity? Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? And not only that, who gives you the authority to speak the way that you're speaking. Because remember, Jesus has been making some very bold claims. He's making statements about himself that, that should only be said about God. And remember, we said, we've got to that, remember this, that again, G, uh, John is trying to show you that, that Jesus is God, right? So he's showing you Jesus is saying things and doing things that any well-educated Jewish person would understand. This man is talking as if he's God. This is, bizarre. this is out of line. This is blasphemous. How dare he? This is where we find ourselves. Jesus is now responding, right, to these uh, Jewish leaders who have been trusting a different authority, but then calling it God. And we talked about that too. This tendency we have, right, to create our own set of righteousness, call it God's righteousness, and then say we're following God, when really we're just following ourselves. And so now Jesus is responding to them. And, and so you look at the first, you know, verses 24 through, through 30, uh, he, he basically is, is, is uh, calling them out and making another yet very incredibly bold claim. And he uses this phrase, truly I tell you. In the King James, it's verily, verily I say unto you. Basically, it's saying, listen up, you don't want to miss this. Let me repeat it again. Listen up. You don't want to make, he's saying it over and over again. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you realize how bizarre this has to be? This is a man who comes from an uneducated, poor family in, in Nazareth, right? Comes from very spurious kind of birthright. Some people still don't know who his real dad is. They still are having all these rumors about who he is. This man gets up, speaks with an authority, and then begins to say, I can say with clarity and certainty who's going to receive eternal life and who won't. That's something that is only reserved for God, right? And yet he's talking with this authority. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this portion, but understand this. We always are in the position of asking the question, who is Jesus and what do I do with his claims? We say this here often. Who is Jesus and what do I do with his claims? I say this because there's some claims here 
that we still have to reckon with. One of the claims here is it, it, by virtue of what he says, he presupposes that there is such a thing as eternal life. So we have to reckon with that claim. Jesus says, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. So as to the question, is there something after this? We have to weigh the claim of Jesus here. Jesus already says there's certainly eternal life. Then the next question is, well, how does one receive eternal life? Well, who is Jesus and what do we do with his claim? He makes this claim. Anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Then he says, truly, I tell you, an hour's coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also has he granted to the Son to have life in himself. Another claim to something only God has. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Again, who is Jesus and what do we do with these claims? I, we don't spend a ton of time talking about this a lot, and largely that's because we're a text-driven church. And so whenever these things come up in Scripture, we're going to talk about them. It's, it is common many times for this type of a topic, right, eternal life, to be used in a way in a lot of churches, and even some of the ones that I grew up in, so as to pressure you and to scare you into this, a decision to be made so that you can go to heaven. That's not a real relationship. God wants to genuinely for, to be able to reach you where you are, not scare you into a place, but to comfort and encourage your heart to both repent and to be changed so that you can join him in, in this kingdom with him. So, so this, we, we, try, we, we try not to be in the habit of, hey, let me, let me pull out the heavy hitter so that I can scare people into. Because listen, if I can scare you into heaven, I can scare you out of it. It can't just be how convincing the argument is or how scary the consequence, the consequence is. It's got to be how glorious and how beautiful and how gracious God is. That's the only thing that truly saves you. Your fear of hell will never save you. Do you, do you understand that? Your fear of hell, will, it will not save you any more than the greatest punishments you levy upon your children. But when they leave the house, will they easily say, hey, well, you know what? I don't have that consequence anymore. So now I can do this with impunity. There's a degree to which, yes, punishment does something to help direct, but it doesn't convert. And so it's so important that we see Jesus is basically saying, I want you all to know, I want you to realize, I want you to understand eternal life is a real thing. And he's saying this to these Jewish leaders. Eternal life is a real thing. He doesn't even have to necessarily, you realize that most of the claims he makes he doesn't even give you a bunch of scientific proofs, metaphysical proofs. He doesn't give you, and I'm all for that. I love that stuff. He doesn't do that. He says, this is what it is, and here's why you should have already known this. Here's why you should have already believed this. Here's why, you, here's why your hard-heartedness is making you reject this. But he doesn't even necessarily try to validate for himself or for these listeners. And here's how I can prove eternal life exists. Here's how I can prove this. He doesn't, he doesn't go there. 
But he continues. And he says, and then he goes, don't be amazed. Don't be amazed at this, right? As I'm talking about eternal life. Because immediately the folks who may not necessarily believe it in this way, immediately they're probably thinking, oh, really? Okay, we're going to have eternal life? What about the folks that are dead? Logically, that doesn't make sense. Jesus, you're talking about us. We're alive. It's easy to say what we're going to get. But we've got family members whose bones have already decomposed. They've been dead for hundreds, thousands of years. What about them? And he says, don't be amazed. Don't be shocked. Don't get it twisted. These folks are coming back. The resurrection will come. So again, who is Jesus? And what do we do with that claim? He can't be just a good man if any of these things are lies. Because good people don't lie. So either he's lying to us here, or he's just out of his mind. He's crazy, which means he's still not trustworthy, right? So either he's lying, either he's crazy, or he truly is God in the flesh. What do we do with that claim? He's not a pizza. You don't get to pick and choose which things you like about him, which things you don't which things you'll obey, which things you won't. I have to reckon with all of these things. Who is Jesus and what do I do with this claim? Is his claim authoritative? Is this a witness I can trust? This is all just the beginning, right? This is all what he starts with. So he's laying this out. Then he he knows what they're thinking. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All of that lays this background for where we are. Because there's something about Jesus as this authority that shows that the, he gives us a great example for, for us to really follow too, right? His agenda is not his own. His agenda is the will of his father. That actually is the only way to actually function in real humility. To say my agenda is not my own. My agenda is not even to make a big deal of myself is to point attention to the Father. And so Jesus is talking to these Jewish leaders, starting with that. Then he gets into the real meat, and he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now think about that for a minute. So he's already, here it is, healing of the man of Bethesda, right? Crazy situation. People are uh, not sure uh, what that means and what to do with that. He, he, they're angry at this claim that he makes. He makes these radical claims. He claims to be equal with God. You see in verses 24 through 30, he's making these claims of being equal with God. Then you get to this place in 31 where Jesus begins to call witnesses to support his claim. He's getting ready to call some witnesses to support. Then he says to him, he says, yes, but it's not just that, uh, it's not just me giving this witness, right? He's already made these amazing claims to deity, these personal claims we got to consider. But he understands something. He's not saying that he's an unworthy witness. You, you could easily extract that by itself and go, Jesus didn't even think he was worthy of being believed, right? Because here, look at what he's saying. I've heard people use weird, spurious logic like that. How can we trust Jesus if he's saying his own testimony is not even true? Jesus understands who he's talking to. He's talking to folks who are very observant Jewish men. And in the Jewish law, they understood that a thing can't be established by just one witness. If it's just one person, you can't establish anything. Two or three witnesses is how a thing is actually established. So Jesus is basically saying, according to your law, I know that me just saying it myself isn't enough. 
I understand that, that where you are and how you, how you see the world and, and the lens through which you view truth and understanding, I know that you're going to be a little bit held back. You're going to be stunted in your ability to grasp this because you need more than just me or more than just one person to establish a thing. And so he starts to call upon other testimonies. And this is where he starts to get really, really interesting in what he brings to them. Because he says, there is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. Now there, in that quick spot, he's already pointing to the Father. He's going to actually dig into the Father more in a little bit. Then after that, he says, you sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. And remember, earlier in the book of John, you see, we talked about this, John the Baptist, the, the maybe third cousin of Jesus at the time, or a distant cousin of Jesus. John the Baptist, his whole job was to come, prepare the way before the Messiah would come, to basically preach a gospel of repentance. Everyone, the time is at hand. The Messiah is here. Repent and turn from your sins, right? That was John the Baptist's whole message. That was his whole baptism. So John the Baptist had been preaching this to the Jewish community before Jesus shows up on the scene. And so Jesus says, John the Baptist has been talking to you about me. That should have sparked something. That should have given you a little bit of something. And he says, look, I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, why is he saying this? He's saying this because Jesus realizes he doesn't need to be validated by human testimony. Testimony. We do. But we don't have any other way, right? That's the reason why he sends humans to other humans. We don't need to be sent to Jesus to convince him of himself. So, so he reveals what he reveals, and then we take the truth of what's been revealed, and then we share it with other people. And so he's like, hey, I, there's, there's one that's already testified about me that came to you. If you look throughout the rest of the scriptures and all throughout the Gospels, for the majority of the people who have ever known Jesus, it's been because another human revealed the truth to them. Whether it's as a small child, another human revealed the Gospel to you. Whether you maybe weren't raised in church and all of a sudden something happened, whether you read a book, you saw a sermon, you sat in a church, you met a friend, you had a family member, somebody shared. You know why? Because that's the primary means by which the gospel goes forth. I'm sure everybody would love to live in a world where it's like, I just want to wait for God to come to me in a dream. I want a burning bush experience. I want to have a donkey talking to me. I want, some of y'all think y'all have some of those. Anyway, I, I, I want to be able to have like some miraculous thing happen just to prove that he's there. But that, for the most part, that's not how God operates. And why is it for us? It's weird, too, when you see a story, a very unique story in the Bible. How highly do we think of ourselves to think we're entitled to that to begin with? As opposed to, Lord, I, whatever you have done normally for the people, all the people that have known you, for the crazy thousands and thousands of years that mankind has been here, that, that, that written history has been here, for all that time, however you have chosen to be able to bring us to you, that's what I want. I don't necessarily need some crazy, miraculous thing. I think the scripture shows us miraculous things don't guarantee you'll keep believing anyway. So again, you, the reason why you want a miraculous thing is because you trust your own authority to witness a thing greater than you do trust the, the goodness and grace of God. That's just what it is. 
So here you're looking at where Jesus kind of the logic that he's taking us down, right? This logical progression is really interesting. He's basically saying, there was already somebody here who gave a testimony about me. Not that I need human testimony. Y'all need that. Not that I need it. But there was a, a testimony that was there, and I say these things so that you may be saved. Again, why are these things important? Why does, why does Jesus have to make this point? Because our, self, our very salvation depends on whether or not we're trusting in the right witnesses. If we're trusting in ourselves as a witness, we likely are not seeing real salvation. We likely aren't. We might feel like it, but we're really not. And Jesus sees, and how do we know that? Because these uh, Jewish leaders had every reason to think that they were in the exact spiritual position they needed to be. Jesus is going to hit on that in a minute. He says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. So, so the first testimony he gives is John's. I call that kind of the unnecessary testimony. Jesus didn't need that. But, but for them, he said, hey, there was someone that already was testifying about me, but I have something that's even greater. Let me just say this real quick. The other reason why human testimony can be really, really sketchy is because of what we just said earlier, right? It, the, the bias piece is a very, very big one. Sometimes this is why when we are in uh, disagreements with each other, we don't realize it, but our perception of things, we have a real high view of ourselves. So we believe that our perception is the prevailing perception. And so we assume that other people must be thinking that. I can say that as a pastor, and even before being a pastor, being in the military, being in the business world, just being a human being, you know what we often do? We think we see something, and maybe nobody else is saying it, but we'll go to a leader and go, you know, and I'm really worried that other people might be thinking this too. Or we'll do the anonymous. Some people have been saying, some people really just mean you, but usually, you're, you know, you'll say, some people have really been talking, and I think a lot of people are starting to wonder about X, Y, and Z. Really? Can you name some of those people? Well, no, I really don't want to start, you know, putting people's business out there. Yeah, but you started. You didn't have any problem putting anonymous people's business out there, really, so that you could support your own position, hoping that you can bring about your agenda. That's not how witnesses work. So just as an aside, if you ever have any issues here or anywhere else, be very specific, because we can't do a thing with anonymous issues. You can't do anything with that. Nothing works that way. And, and ultimately, we need to be a community where we can really trust each other enough to be able to say, hey, there is a legitimate problem or an issue, and here are the specific things that have been brought here. But see, this is why human testimony is funny. This is why you need more than just human testimony when it comes to spiritual things, because otherwise, we'd be rolling bias in everything to try to make one person saved and one person not and so Jesus uh, really is saying, like, yeah, we gave, I gave you this, not that I necessarily need it. I've got a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Jesus says, these very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. So now he says, it's not just that John the Baptist did this incredible thing. But second, the works, the miracles of Jesus verify and validate the claims of Jesus. So again, we're, we're forced to go back to, okay, who is Jesus and what do I do with these claims? Did he really do these things? 
can I really trust that, that he truly did these things? This testimony that Jesus has, if it's greater than the words and the testimony of John, and Jesus says that the works that he's doing bears witness that the Father has sent him, then this is, this is, this is really important because you know what this says is, no matter what it is that I hear or no matter what it is that I think must pale in comparison to what Jesus has done. I have to measure that always. Okay, here's what I think. Here's what I've heard. How does this connect or compare or contrast with the works of Jesus? Now, it was easier for them then because the works of Jesus were still contemporary, right? They still were happening right at the time. So it was, this is why we say like Christianity would be the silliest thing to make up because a lot of the claims that were made were made when they could have been refuted. Right? It's a lot easier and it's much more logical to create a lie of a faith, which there are several religions that will work this way where it's like, hey, we've got a truth that uh, we only, we, we got a chance to write about it thousands of years after the event occurred so that you can't go and verify or check anybody. But the truth of Jesus, actually, we've got people, we have records of people who were actually alive during that time who account for some of the things that Jesus did, including people who weren't even believers. And all they do is just report, historically, here are some things that happened. Can't tell you for sure if I believe it or not, but here are the things that are being reported that happened. So, so it's, it's, it would be just asinine to create something like this, to make up these claims. Imagine people are going, hey, Jesus just healed a, a lame man. Jesus just made a blind man see again. Jesus just raised somebody from the dead. All it would take is one person to go, nah, nah, fam, that's not it. That didn't happen. You know why? Because I got the stinky body still right here. He's the, he, you couldn't do that. You couldn't make up that lie. That's the reason why Christianity grew the way that it did. Because those claims that could be checked, they were being checked. People didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know what to do with the information, but they realized there were too many people that saw this. Upwards of 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. We see that in, in Acts. 500 plus people saw the resurrected Jesus and started talking about it. Why do that if it's a lie? Why go to your death? We have several books that talk about some of the deaths of these martyrs that died during the time of Jesus. And some of them are being boiled alive. Some of them are getting fingernails pulled off. And all they have to do is recant this idea that they saw the resurrected Christ. And they don't. Why would 500 people just conspire to hold on to a lie and die for it? That just doesn't make sense. So you've got people who are holding on to, to, to the truth. Why? Because they saw or experienced the works of Jesus. They saw or experienced these works, and so they had to hold on to that. This is where it's, it's, it's really, it's so interesting when you think about how Jesus is talking to these leaders. He's only done a few miracles thus far, and yet these miracles are already creating a real buzz around him. So he says, John the Baptist was one testimony. My works prove that I'm sent from the Father. And then, he, then he says something here. He says, the Father who has sent me has himself testified about me. So now he's talking about the Father's claim. And he says, the Father's witness. So it's not just, it's not just John the Baptist, and it's not even just Jesus' works, but the Father himself proves or, or, or serves as a witness to Jesus' authority and his deity. It says, the father who sent me has himself testified about me. 
Then he really calls out. See, to say that the father sent me, that's going to be a real indictment. Because if there's anybody who's supposed to have an idea, their thumb on the pulse of the father's heart, it's supposed to be the greatest religious leaders within the faith, right? So these are the, these are the church elders. These are the leaders in the Sanhedrin. These are the guys who are the most well-educated. If anybody knows God, it's these folks. If anybody has studied God, it's these folks. And Jesus says, hey, this same father that you claim to follow, he's been testifying about me and you've missed it. And then he says, you haven't heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. That is such an indictment for someone whose job it is. Their profession, their vocation, their very existence is rooted in following God, preaching about God, loving God. That's, their that's what they would say their goal is, right? That's what they would say their job description is. And Jesus says, by the way, this very thing that you've trusted in, this identity that you have, yeah, it doesn't give you any access to the Father right now. What you think you know, you don't. Then he goes further and he says, not only have you not heard his voice at any time, which is such a bold thing to say, you've not heard his voice at any time, but you haven't seen his form. Then in 38, he says, you don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. But wait a minute, y'all. These are leaders that had a lot of scripture memorized. They knew a lot of scripture. They probably knew they could quote more scripture than anybody. They, they knew a lot of theology, y'all. They, they went to the, the best seminaries, y'all. They preached in the, in the temple. Y'all, they were, they were the ministers. They were the leaders. They were the quote-unquote anointed ones. Don't even get me started on that word, but the anointed ones. How is it possible then that they could have missed God? They got the title. They got the education. They got the pedigree. They have all these things. Everything we would say that, hey, that, they must be godly. That must make them uh, 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 up to the task. And yet he says, this very indicting thing, your jo their job is to study the word and yet they don't have his word in them. Same thing we said last week. You can know God's word and miss his heart. You can quote God's word and not have the love of God in you. And then he says something very telling, and this is one that really stopped me about 10, 11 years ago. I sat and studied this scripture and I was in this one place and God was talking through this. I never, ever heard this put this way before. Verse 39, this one is one of those verses that really changed some things for me. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Do you see what he's saying here? Because look, look y'all, it's a good church folk. You don't realize that you will bury your nose in the Bible to hide from God. You, and you'll feel justified in ignoring the heart of God, justified ignoring people that should be loved with the love of God because you're reading the word of God. 
He said, you think that you have eternal life in this, but you've missed me. Now, in, in, in good theological circles, there's a whole study of what it means to, to, to understand biblical interpretation. It's a word called hermeneutics, right? Hermeneutics is the study of biblical interpretation. So how, there is a way to really understand right, what was said. I've said this before. The Bible is not like abstract art. It's not a Rorschach test. It's not something that's like, what do I feel in the moment? That's what it's saying. There was an intention when the author wrote a thing. Now, it can be hard to figure out what the intention was. But there are ways, there's a way that we need to be able to study and understand and go, okay, who was the original audience? Who was the author? What was happening at the time? What is he trying to get across to us, right? Jesus is actually giving us a hermeneutic to understand what the scriptures were for them back then, which is what we know to be the Old Testament. You've got the, the Torah. You've got the books of prophecy. You've got several of these different kind of genres throughout the Old Testament. But to the degree that they had whatever they had collated together, that was, those were the scriptures. And he's basically saying, hey, I'm giving you a hermeneutic to be able to understand what you've been reading for thousands of years. All those Old Testament uh, uh, verses you've been reading from Genesis to Malachi have been pointing to me. So you've been reading this for a really long time. And these leaders specifically, you know what they were doing? They were doing kind of what we do. When I want to win an argument, then I want to get in the Bible. When I want to defend myself, then I want to get in the Bible. When I want to be able to tell you what's wrong with what you're doing in your life, then I want to get in the Bible. But you know why we don't? The one thing that we ought to be doing when we're reading the Bible, I, I don't want to just see a principle. I don't want to just see a doctrine. I need to be seeing a person. Jesus. If your scripture reading doesn't lead you to a deeper and more engaging connection to the heart of Jesus Christ, then you very well may not understand salvation. I'm serious. When we're looking at, Pastor, this doesn't mean that that every single Old Testament where we can just go one-to-one and go, this means Jesus. But what it does mean is, how here does this reflect the heart of God, because Jesus is the very image of God before us, right? Jesus is uh, very much equal with God. So how do I see the heart of Jesus borne out in both the Old and the New Testament? This is why it's very dangerous when we believe in this idea that the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. He's always been a God of grace and faith. He's always been a God of grace and faith. And when you study scripture with that mindset, Man, okay, if Jesus, what do I do with his claims? If every single part of the Old Testament is meant to point to him, then that has to be a part of your study when you're studying Genesis, when you're studying Habakkuk, when you're studying Malachi, when you're studying Micah, when you're studying 1 Kings. Okay, uh, there's, there's definitely something happening very literally there, but also what aspects of God's character, what, what attributes of who God is, what things does this reveal about who Jesus is? That's the only way that we don't get lost in the law of God apart from the heart of God. That's the only way. It's to any scripture I read, I have to go, all right, I want to, okay, I see that this is here. Now, where's God's heart in this? Where's God's heart in this? So that when we're talking to each other, when we're comforting or when we're challenging each other, are we challenging, not just with, this is why it's dangerous, but uh uh-uh, the Bible says, 
It sounds good, and I'm not saying it's wrong. We, we want to follow the Bible, but be very careful. We anthropomorphize the Bible as if the Bible is a person. The Bible is not a person. Jesus is. The Bible is not God. Jesus is. The Bible leads us to who God is. Be careful not to make this an idol, because you'll love his word and hate his heart. You'll love his word, and you'll hate his heart. We talked about this a couple of years ago. You know who loved God's word and hated his heart? Jonah. Jonah was all about God's wrath. He was all about the righteousness of God until God said, hey, go to the Ninevites and go preach to them. And Jonah at first is like, oh, yeah, preach to them. What, damnation? You about, to, you about to get them? You about to cut them up? You about to get them? No, go preach repentance. Oh, no, you're not giving them grace and mercy. I'm not here for grace and mercy. Let me, let me go the opposite direction because I'm not going that way. Why? He was all for God's word when it was about condemnation. He didn't want any part of God's heart when it came to grace and mercy. Be very careful about making the word of God an idol so that you love his word more than you love his heart. And so Jesus tells them, y'all should know better. You, you got the word in front of you. The scripture's been there. You've been reading the scriptures forever. He said, you can read the scriptures all you want to. If you don't see Jesus in the scriptures, you will never find life. You won't find it. And here he is giving these folks who have, again, remember, what's the backdrop? They don't believe that, this, that Jesus should be saying these things. They don't believe that Jesus has the authority to do this. And he's saying he could have easily just done something in front of them to go, man, wow, this guy just did something else amazing. But he doesn't. He calls them out for saying the stuff that you should have believed all this time, you haven't. The life that you think you have right now, you don't. And then you see how he proceeds. He says he's not interested in receiving uh, their approval. He's, he's basically saying, I'm not going to change what I'm doing to satisfy the expectations of these religious leaders. He says, you'll accept other people that come, and, and you'll accept people to come in, in, in their own name because they'll do what you want them to do. But the people won't accept, they won't give glory, they won't love Jesus because he didn't come to run a popularity contest. He didn't come to do things the way that they wanted them to do them. He's saying, listen, I'm here to show you God's heart. And you may completely miss it. You have indeed missed it. So what do we do with this? What witnesses are we believing? What do we actually trust? When you get towards the end of that, he actually gives a fifth witness, and this is specifically for those folks within the Jewish community. And he says, by the way, the great father of all of our faith, right, is Moses, the one that you claim to be studying and understand. As, as a Jewish leader, you would understand there is no prophet higher than Moses. And up until, because folks in the Jewish community are still waiting for the Messiah to come, outside of that, there's no other higher prophet there, right? Before the Messiah comes, it's Moses. So they all claim to trust. These folks here are claiming to be holding to the truth of Moses and believing in what Moses has written. And whenever they would call out somebody for doing something wrong or being out of God's will, they would say, uh-uh, Moses, uh-uh, Moses. And that's why Jesus says, the very thing that you trusted as an authority actually con condemns you right now. You've been trusting in your tradition and your idea of what God is like, and you've been pointing to Moses. You didn't know this, but Moses also was always pointing to me. You see, what Jesus is ultimately saying is everything that, you th everything that exists exists to point in my direction. And somehow in this twisted way, we found a way to use things that were created by him, created for him, created in him to lead us away from him. Wow. 
And Jesus is saying, no, not so. This is all about me. So in concluding with this Moses of witness, he is showing how the very thing that they trust is the thing that condemns them. How do you trust and confess something without a reliable witness? I'm gonna close with this. Very, very well-known passage, something that the Apostle Paul, one who came into con- in contact with the resurrected Christ and had this incredible event where he was someone who trusted in his tradition and trusted in the word of God in order to avoid the very heart of God until God came and crushed his heart. Y'all, the best thing that can happen is for God to come and break our cold hearts and remake them to love him and love each other well. That's the best thing that can ever happen. The best thing he can do is to love us where we are, and we say this every time, but to love you too much to leave you like that. If he just let, that's the guy that we want, right? The guy that we want is, I just, we say this all the time, like I, I, I don't want, real love shouldn't change me. I am who I am and you should love me the way that I am. On one sense, cool. On another sense, completely not God's heart. God is saying, there are things about you that I want to change, that I'm going to change. And if you're in community with other people, you should hope that that will also be a part of the way God will change you. Because what God doesn't do is change you in a vacuum. When God got Paul's heart, he didn't just leave Paul in a desert somewhere and change him on his own. He brought him to other believers that spent time, a couple of years, being able to get him to a place where he started to be discipled and started to understand. And his heart begins to be broken a little bit and go, oh, wow, here's another thing about my own heart that doesn't look like his. And I've got these folks that love me well enough to go, by the way, here's another. They didn't just go, okay, let me get you some scripture. They couldn't do that. Well, Paul, he, he studied under the greatest rabbi of the time. So you know it wasn't just, let me just pound more scripture into you. Scripture is vitally important, but the heart of God has to be what happens here. They were like, Paul, you know a lot of scripture. You don't really know much about his heart. So what does that look like then? What does it mean then when when we have to say, what do I trust? Why should I trust this? Why? Jesus says, I'm doing this so that you will be saved Why is it so vital then that we trust him as a witness, that we trust what uh, those who have witnessed about him have said, that we trust what Jesus's works have declared, that we trust what the father has uh, testified to about him? Why is it so important? Why is it so important to believe that? Not just to say it. Why is it so important to believe it? It's because of this very well-known passage that we know and we've memorized. I'm going to read it. Romans 10, 9 and 10. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can you call on a name that you do not trust? How can you call on a name that you can't trust the witness of? What does it mean for me to be able to know that I can trust Jesus? What does it mean for me to, why does it matter? Maybe is a better question. Why should this matter? I've had people ask this before. Why? Okay, like why does it matter exactly what I believe? I mean, I said the words, I, I, I said I believe them. 
I said I believe him. I pray in Jesus' name every time I say grace. Clearly, I must believe him. But you realize that when the Bible talks about belief, it's not just talking about the seed of your intellect and the seed of your emotion. It's talking about the seed of your will. For a lot of us, I'm not saying this is the case with every aspect of what it means to trust Jesus, but I will say this. Many times we hide behind the idea that we just don't have enough evidence. The problem isn't a lack of evidence. It's a lack of humility and a lack of submission. That's honestly our bigger issue. It's not a matter of just, well, if only I had another piece of evidence over here, because there's several things here that we can point to to really show there's good reason to be able to place faith here. The issue is a lack of, it's a lack of humility. It's a lack of submission. Jesus cares so much about us coming to him, us being drawn by him, us being loved well by him. And he cares so much to be able to say, there are reasons, there are reasons to believe and to be able to trust my witness and to be able to trust what I've done for you. So how do we trust him? What does it mean to, to have a reliable witness? Jesus is truly the reliable witness. He is the one that we truly can trust. And he's the one that, you know, honestly, if, I, if, I, if I'm just being really honest about me and even my own heart, sometimes I lean in. Think about the times when you lean in to your faith. When things are going really well, there's not a whole lot of leaning in necessary, right? Which is sad, but that's just how we are. When things are going well, things are copacetic, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I might say, thank God, another blessing. Amen, keep moving. But when things go really bad, when things are going badly, when there's real pain, when there's real doubt, then what do we do? Now here's, the, here's the scary thing. When your heart's broken, when you're scared, when you're hurt, you're only, this is just sad, but you're only gonna wanna run into the scriptures or run to him just to find comfort, just to find the answer, but not to find him. And actually, that's why we feel unfulfilled. Because we're like, no, I, I, we're being like the Pharisees. The, the, the Messiah that they wanted looked like this. The Messiah that we want looks a certain way. If I'm scared, I want to be made confident again. If I'm hurt, I just want to feel whole again. If I'm unsure, I want to be certain again. And if I don't get those things, then this can't possibly be God. The question is, do we want him or we ultimately just want his stuff? What Jesus says is that I love you and I'm giving you all of me. And when I give you all of me, you may not necessarily get what it is that you think or what it is that you really want, but I promise you, you are going to get exactly what you need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, God, you are, you are good and you, you're good, not just because of the things that, that have happened in our lives, even though those definitely declare your goodness. God, you are good because of what you have declared about yourself. You've declared these things. They have been witnessed to by, by others. They have been witnessed to by your son. And God, you continue to, to show yourself over and over again to be one that keeps his promises, one that shows himself to be a gracious, merciful, loving Savior. 
And yet, God, there are times, there are many times where we, where I trust in another witness. God, sometimes our own minds are our greatest witness. Our emotions are our greatest witness. Our experiences are our greatest witness. Our pain is our greatest witness. Our fears are our greatest witness. And some, many, in many cases, all of those witnesses are louder than yours. And Father, for that, we repent. God, I pray that you would lead us to a deep place of repentance here. God, I pray that your witness will be so great. It's the loudest voice we hear. I pray that when we uh, come into your, into your church, this gathered assembly, that we come here not just to be able to see friends. That is beautiful and wonderful and we need it. Not so that we can feel together. It's beautiful and necessary and we need it. But God, ultimately, I pray that even in our relating to each other, we get a better, a better and bigger picture and more accurate picture of who you are. Father, we need your heart. Without it, we miss everything. And so, Father, I, I'm so thankful that you have said that we don't actually have to go and surgically replace our heart. We don't have to do surgery on our heart. You give us a new one. You come, work on these dead, cold, lifeless hearts. And you told the prophet spoke and, and, and even gave us a picture of who you are when he said that you are coming to take these hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. So Father, please, we pray that you indeed will do that, that you will continue to be faithful. You've promised to do that for us. So God, we pray that you would do that today. Let us get, be in a place where we trust in your authority. We trust in your word because your heart is present. And Father, we pray these things in the matchless name of the witness among all witnesses, the witness above all, the, the voice that is above all, the heart that is above all, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.